And now, a Sorry Wrong Door production of a podcast for your enjoyment. Strange, interesting, and slightly gamey. An absurd glimpse into the post-eclectic age. Sugar's only sweetness. Salt is ocean tears. And you were my only weakness. For years and years and years. Are we going? SISG is a broad spectrum show where we cover topics from the worlds of music, live entertainment, film, nostalgia, pop culture, and anything else that comes into our heads, all with an emphasis on the strange and the unusual. It's basically the things that interest us and we hope will interest you too. Now the devil, she must be a dentist with deep jawbreaker eyes. Red rope hair, gumdrop lips, cotton candy thighs. You're my candy. Happy holidays, everyone, and welcome to Podcast 27. Tonight, in the spirit of the holidays, we have lots of gifts for you. Like some Cthulhu carols from the great H.P. Lovecraft Society. And an exploration into the mysteries and horrors of Bakersfield, California. Still later, we have the induction of Flip Wilson into our Hall of Fame and play for you a classic comedy piece from him. Then there's another selection from the great Vincent Price, a scholastic book reading, and finally, a discussion of the gifts that got away, those glorious toys we wished for in vain. And more stuff, of course. So, this is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. Let's get started. I saw Mommy kissing Yogg-Sotha In the ring of stones on Sentinel Hill My brother and I were spawned From the Necronomicon Dad looks just like his picture on page 751. Now we will work to summon Yogg-Sothoth, the key to where the great old ones have trod. He'd surely come unglued had Armitage ever viewed Mommy kissing Yogg-Sothoth the God. Truth is stranger than fiction. And this is the truth. This is Ripley. Believe it or not. Bird scientists are fascinated by the fact that the bald-headed eagle is bigger when it's two years old than when it's a full-grown bird. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you the strange story of a ship whose cargo was bad luck. The Hindmoa, a 2,000-ton steel bark, was built in Scotland in 1890. On her maiden voyage, four apprentices died of typhoid. Her first captain went insane. Her second skipper, a criminal. Her third, an alcoholic. Her fourth and fifth captains were suicide. She was finally wrecked in 1908. Superstitious sailors say her bad luck was because on her first voyage, 
Her ballast was rubble from a London graveyard. Believe it or not. Tam, kde končejí všechny flámy, hospůdky útulný prej jsou. Často tam natrefíš svý známý, sedět nad raní polívkou. A celou noc až do svítání, odevšad slyšíš country znít. Pódium pro všechny je k mání, v uličkách města Bakersfield. Já každou noc stejnej sen mývám, vidím se tímhle městem jít. V průvodu countrymenů zpívám, v uličkách města Bakersfield. The California city of Bakersfield is the ninth largest city in the state, and yet nationally, if it's known for anything at all, it's only for agriculture and perhaps the country music legend Buck Owens. But for some who've looked closer, the Bakersfield area is known as a vortex of the bizarre and the unusual. There's not just its roadside attractions like the giant shoe at Chester and Tenth, the giant ant at Murray Farms, or Merle Haggard's boxcar home. There's also the rumors of Satanists, the sinkhole that swallowed a car, and the mysterious lights in the sky throughout the years. A whole armada of them back in 2015, apparently. Then there are the hauntings. More than the area's share, if you ask me. And that's what we're narrowing down all this weirdness to this evening. The spectral beings of the Bakersfield area. Good old ghost stories for a cold, dark December night. And we begin with a town just 30 miles north of Bakersfield, the town of Delano, and their mysterious lady. Browning Road is a lonely country lane running north and south on the eastern edge of Delano. It travels by fields and orchards and some open prairie, and sometimes people have seen a dead woman standing near it. She's known simply as the Browning Road Lady, and she has been seen many places along Browning, but especially between Grace's Highway and the Willamette Avenue to the south. Mostly, she's just seen as a young woman standing along the road, looking like she's about to cross, but other times she's more active. There are stories of her appearing for a moment in the back seat of a traveling car or chasing after drivers late at night. Sometimes she'll leap in front of the cars who swerve to miss her but when the shaken occupants get out to look for her, she's nowhere to be seen. There are times when she doesn't appear as a woman at all, but as an indistinct shadowy figure. Ghost hunters have traveled down Browning looking for her, some with success. One group stopped and tried flashing their lights to attract the dead woman, and then suddenly she appeared standing next to the passenger side. There's a story of other hunters who also stopped along the road after a fruitless night. In their frustration, they began to yell out to the woman mockingly, 
When they didn't get a response, they returned to their car and found her sitting for a moment in their back seat. These and other chilling stories continue to be told about that stretch of road. There's another woman who's been seen walking along the canal banks in the central park of Bakersfield. She comes at dawn, though, and has been heard to weep, but others have found her quiet, wandering the banks in silence before she vanishes. On 20th and Oak, there supposedly was a hospital in old days. Now there are still dead children wandering around that area that are seen late at night. There are a few specters at the Bakersfield, California newspaper, an editor who wanders the hallways, and a security guard that still works there even after his death and is sometimes seen in the lunchroom. And of course, there's the German shepherd who wanders the hallways looking for his dead master. In another part of Bakersfield, a man named Jesse told the tale of a child he saw in his house. He says he had come home from a lunch shift at one job and he was relaxing watching TV before moving on to his night job. At one point, he saw what he thought was his roommate's sister walking across the doorway to his room. He yelled at her that he could see her and that he wouldn't be scared by her. It looked like she was hiding behind the door of the room. He yelled again to her to come get out of there and let's have a beer before I go to work. There was no answer. Then he jumped up and ran to the room, saying as he went, I know you're behind the door. Quit messing around. But when he jerked the door closed to look behind it, there was no one there. He didn't know what to think. He knew he saw somebody walk across the room. But who could it have been, and where were they now? A few days later, he saw the same something again. He was back in his easy chair watching TV when down the hallway he noticed something out of the corner of his eye. When he turned to see, there was a young boy partially hiding behind the accordion doors at the very end of the hallway. He was staring at Jesse, and he wore glasses and a striped shirt. When Jesse saw him, he got angry, and he yelled, What the hell? How'd you get in here? Then he got out of his chair and ran towards the boy at the back of the hall. The boy, seeing him, ducked behind the accordion door. Jesse reached the door and looked behind it, expecting to find the scared child. But there was no one there. After that night, every morning around 5 a.m., there was pounding on the wall of his bedroom. It was like a boxer hitting on a bag. This went on every morning for days. At the Bakersfield High School, there are three different ghosts. There's a ghost of a couple that is on the top of the bleachers and has even appeared during football games. And there's another ghost of a workman in the Harvey Auditorium. And finally in their quad, ghosts have been seen. There's a place on 19th Street where ghosts used to haunt, but no longer. Now at 906 19th Street is the Liberty Career College. But before that, when it was number 902, the Club 902 was there. And before that was the Club Paradise. And it was this establishment that was haunted. Many patrons complained of being grabbed or groped when there was no one around. 
and objects were seen to move. People were shoved in the hallway when no one was there, and employees in the storeroom were sometimes locked in when nobody else was in the building. East Bakerfield High has its share of ghosts. There's a former janitor that still wanders the hall, and sometimes people who have worked late at night can hear footfalls echoing down the hallways. But you don't have to be in the city to see strange things. A girl named Haley tells a tale of when her, her sister, and her mother were driving over the grapevine late at night back to Bakersfield. At 1 a.m. they stopped at a rest stop. It was dark with freezing wind and drenching rain. They should have stayed together, but they went in three different directions to different restrooms. Well, when they had finished and returned to the warmth of the car, they each had an eerie story to tell. Haley's sister told of a handsome man dressed in black that crossed her path. He smiled at her, but looked a little weird, almost too perfect. The mother saw the man, too, who smiled at her, but then went on to open his arms as if he knew her. Haley also saw that man, and he, too, beckoned to her as if he knew her. As they told their stories to each other, they suddenly realized that they had all seen the same man at about the same time in three different places. The man that was beautiful and had long dark hair and dark eyes. Foolishly, they got their courage up and went outside to find him, but he was gone. He hadn't seemed scary to any of the women. He seemed good, just somehow different. Still, Haley prefers not to visit desolate rest stops now. On 18th Street, back in Bakersfield, at 2128, is a house and a realty building that was built back in 1911. It is now said to be one of the most haunted places in California. The main specters seem to be a man swinging a hammer against a wall and a woman who often looks angry and wanders by. They never speak or interact with anyone who sees them, but they seem to be bickering with each other. These are the mild ones of the house, but there are more aggressive ones. There was a couple once that were going to buy the house, and one night they went by to take one more look at it after hours. As they were walking up to the house, a man jumped out of the shadows. Staggering towards them, he said, Leave now and don't come back here. They asked why, and as they asked, they realized that they could see through this man. He answered, Because I don't want her to get you. And he pointed at the house. They turned around, and in the window was a strange-looking girl with dark eyes who was beckoning them to the house. They ran and didn't look back, and they uh, obviously never bought this house. Then there's the Freeborn haunting. A Mrs. Meg Lyons died in her Bakersfield home, and nothing was touched, so that when the new owner moved in back in November of 81, the house was still in the condition that Mrs. Lyons had left it. The furniture was in the same place, and so were the clothes in the closets and dressers. Mrs. Freeborn began cleaning and rearranging the house to suit herself, and that's when strange things began to happen. The first was a loud thumping noise from the kitchen. But this Mrs. Freeborn dismissed as noisy plumbing, 
But then other things began to happen. Mrs. Freeborn always closed her doors and her cabinets before going to bed. But occasionally she would awake to find them wide open in the morning. She always shut her lights off before she left the house. But sometimes she'd come back and find lights turned on. Ones that she knew for a fact she had turned off. There was a picture she tried to hang on her wall. When she returned later in the day, she saw that the picture had fallen off, but had not broken. It was just laying on the floor against the wall. She put it up again and came back later and found it in the same condition. She tried this five times before she gave up. Finally, sometime later, she hung the picture in a spare bedroom, much lower on the wall. This time, the picture stayed. In 1982, Mrs. Freeborn began to redecorate the master bedroom, and the weirdness began again. While she was shopping for wallpaper during the day, she had the strange feeling that she was being watched. Later that same night, she was awoken by a crashing noise and loud banging sounds coming from somewhere in the house. This kept her awake for a long time. Finally, around 2 a.m., she got up to use the bathroom. She turned on the water in the sink to wash her hands, and suddenly the bathroom window flew open. She closed it and then hurried back to her room in terror and sat there frightened. Then she heard the bathroom window open again, and at the same time the bedroom window slammed shut. Then the folding doors flew open on one of her closets, and another closet door slammed, closed. Her dog was going crazy by this time, barking up a storm. That was it. Mrs. Freeborn picked up her dog and raced out of the bedroom and into the hallway. Suddenly, she couldn't go any further. There was some sort of pressure that was stopping her. An invisible mass in the hall. Freeborn believed then and there that she would die if she didn't get out of the house immediately. Three different forces seemed to be in that hallway. One on each side of her and one in front. Out of desperation, she shouted, Get out of my way! and pushed her way through the hallway. Then she ran out the back door, still wearing her nightgown, and drove away in her car. It's not clear whether she ever returned to the house, but I doubt she kept it. So that's just a few of the spectral occurrences in good old Bakersfield, not to mention all the other weirdness in the area. You just might want to make a road trip up there sometime and do your own investigation. Just don't linger at any rest stops. Got stuck in Bakersfield one Christmas Stuck in a narrow chimney over here Emergency crew couldn't get him out Soon lost his cheer and there ain't no doubt Santa got stuck in Bakersfield one Christmas Santa got stuck in Bakersfield one Christmas Where there ain't no snow with just honky-tonks couldn't get him out for days and days Children crowded in parents' praise Santa got stuck in Bakersfield one Christmas Santa got stuck Call it bad luck If it weren't for luck But Santa would still be there An old kid played some buck Got Santa moving and it got him unstuck 
Santa got stuck hey, in Bakersfield on Christmas. Beginning to look a lot like fishmen Everywhere I go From the minute I got to town And started to look around I thought these ill-bred people's gill slits showed I'm beginning to hear a lot of fishmen Right outside my door as I try to escape in fright To the moonlit ends with night I can hear some more They speak with guttural croaks And to hear them provokes A profound desire to flee Their eyes never blink And quite frankly they stink Like a carcass washed up from the sea I wish I'd paid attention To that crazy drunken man He tried to warn me all about Old Marsh's deep one clan It's beginning to look a lot like fishmen Everywhere I go They can dynamite Devil Reef But that'll bring no relief Yohanifley is deeper than they know I'll continue to see a lot of fishmen That I guarantee For the fishman I really fear Is the one who's in the mirror And he looks like me He looks just like me Tonight we have another great performer to induct into the SISG Hall of Fame. He's a comedian and actor who had his own TV show between 1970 and 1974, and his birthday just happens to be in this month. So it's very appropriate that we now present to you, drum roll please, Flip Wilson. Flip Wilson was an amazing performer who had charisma and a folksy likability, and he could tell a great story not to mention create characters that came to life, Geraldine Jones being his most famous. He started out as a nightclub performer and then went on to do nine comedy albums. One he won a Grammy for. He also did a lot of guest appearances on TV shows. He then got his own TV show 
and by 1972 was on the cover of Time magazine. Mr. Wilson was also involved in two animated TV specials and appeared in movies. A truly talented and hardworking man. Tonight, we happen to have a sample of his work for you. Cream chip beef. Sing is a small military command post somewhere in South Vietnam. It's early in the morning. Captain Edwards, the company commander, is on the phone. We find Captain Edwards saying, Yes, General. He did. When? He said, General, said, I'll take disciplinary measures. I'll get on the case right away. Said, I don't see why you'd do something like that. I had some and I liked it. So I'll speak to him, General. Okay. To send in private Jenkins. Jenkins comes in. Come to Jenkins. Said, the Army's fed up. Well, that Jenkins. The Army's fed up with you. The Army's fed up and I'm fed up. So you know what you should do, Jenkins? You should go someplace and start an army of your own. <laughs> because we're not going to let you run this army. That's why we made you a private. Because we didn't want you running this army. <laughs> so Jenkins, you're in a lot of trouble in this army. So let me tell you, he said, if I hear of you talking back to a prisoner of war, you're going to the guardhouse. So I just got a call from the general about a letter you wrote complaining about the cream chip beef on toast. <laughs> you know, what's wrong with the cream chip beef? Said, I eat it and I like it. Jenkins said, well, Captain, I'm going to tell you the same thing I told the general in the letter. Said, the cream chip beef is too loose. <laughs> said, I like my cream chip beef thick. Said, I like bigger chips. <laughs> so when my mother used to fix it at home, she used biscuits instead of toast. Said she'd smile and ask me how I felt in the morning as she scooped the big spoonful on my plate. Said it spoiled my whole day when I come through the child line in the morning and I'm not awake yet and the cream chip beef is loose. <laughs> Said the chips are small and the toast is burnt. Said instead of the cook asking me how I feel, he's yelling, keep the line moving, don't hold up the line. Other guys gotta eat, let's keep the line moving. Said so it spoils my ability to function as a member of the world's greatest military machine. That's why I've been, that's why I've been sloughing off. <laughs> Captain, you're in a lot of trouble, Jenkins. Said, but I got an opportunity available for you to get back on good terms with the army. Said, you know what, Jenkins? Said, I'm going to send you on the impossible mission. <laughs> Jenkins said, the impossible mission? He said, what's that? Captain said, well, I'll tell you about it. You know what it is, Jenkins? Said, we're getting ready to pull a big attack on the enemy. Said, what's holding up the attackers? We don't know how many of them there are. But we know they're out there. Because we see them every time we look at them. <laughs> said, so what we want you to do is sneak behind their lines tonight and count them. As soon as we hear from you, we'll start the attack. He just said, count them? That's ridiculous. Captain said, that's why we call the mission impossible. <laughs> don't say it's ridiculous when you haven't even tried. So that night, about nine, Jenkins walks off into the jungle and has two ballpoint pens and a notepad. <laughs> About three that morning, everyone in the camp is asleep and they heard this weird sound. It was a weird sound, like a big giggle. And laughing, you know. So they run out of their tents and they look and Jenkins is coming out of the jungle. He had this long rope. He had 4,000 Viet Cong tied to the rope. Cat <laughs> <laughs> said, so what's going on, Jenkins? So what is this? Jenkins said, they're my prisoners. So I captured them. Captain said, well, how? Jenkins said, well, they woke up while I was counting them. And I said, what are you doing? I said, I'm counting you. He said, it's holding up the big attack. So we can't start the attack until we find out how many of you guys there are, and we didn't want to bother you during the day, so the... 
the captain told me to come over here tonight and count you. So then they started laughing. So the more I counted, the more they laughed. <laughs> and I kept counting, they kept laughing. Then they fell on the ground laughing, I tied them up. <laughs> the captain said, fantastic, Jenkins. He said, fantastic. He said, I'm going to recommend you for private first class. He said, and I'm also going to put you in for the Congressional Medal of Honor. He said, you go back to your tent, get a good night's rest, and we'll discuss the cream chip beef in the morning. <laughs> Next morning, Jenkins gets up. He goes over to Chow Hall. He's walking down the line. First thing he notices is that there's biscuits instead of toast. He looks, and the cream chip beef is thick. The chips are bigger. Then he looks further down the line. He looks, and he says, Mother! <laughs> and she says, Keep the line moving, honey. Keep the line moving. And now, pretentious readings from Scholastic Books. In 1966, Richard J. Hurley put together eight classic stories of science fiction, eight strange tales of other worlds, as he put it, and called the collection Beyond Belief. My favorite of these tales is Arthur C. Clarke's History Lesson. No one could remember when the tribe had begun its long journey. The land of great rolling plains that had been their first home was now no more than half a forgotten dream. For many years, Shan and his people had been fleeing through the country of low hills and sparkling lakes, and now the mountains lay ahead. This summer, they must cross them to the Southlands. There was little time to lose. The white terror that had come down from the poles, grinding continents into dust and freezing the very air before it, was less than a day's march behind. Shan wondered if the glaciers could climb the mountain ahead, and within his heart he dared to kindle a little flame of hope. This might prove a barrier against which even the remorseless ice would batter in vain. In the southern lands of which the legend spoke, his people might find refuge at last. It took weeks to discover a pass through which the tribe and the animals could travel. When Midsummer came, they had camped in a lonely valley where the air was so thin and the stars shone with a brilliance no one had ever seen before. The summer was waning when Chan took his two sons and went ahead to explore the way. For three days they climbed, and for three nights they slept as best they could on freezing rocks. And on the fourth morning there was nothing ahead but a gentle rise to a cairn of grey stones built by other travelers centuries ago. Shan felt himself trembling, and not with cold. As they walked towards the little pyramid of stones, his sons had fallen behind. No one spoke, for too much was at stake. In a little while, they would know if all their hopes had been betrayed. To the east and the west, the wall of the mountains curved away as if embracing the land beneath. Below lay endless miles of undulating plain 
with a river swinging across it in tremendous loops. It was fertile land, one in which the tribe could raise crops knowing that there would be no need to flee before the harvest came. Then Shan lifted his eyes to the south and saw the doom of all his hopes. For there at the edge of the world glimmered that deadly light he had seen so often to the north, the glint of ice below the horizon. There was no way forward. Through all the years of flight, the glaciers from the south had been advancing to meet them. Soon they would be crushed between the moving walls of ice. The southern glaciers did not reach the mountains until a generation later. In that last summer, the sons of Shan carried the sacred treasures of the tribe to the lonely cairn overlooking the plain. The ice that had once gleamed below the horizon was now almost at their feet. By spring it would be splintering against the mountain walls. No one understood the treasures now. They were from a past too distant for the understanding of any man alive. Their origins were lost in the mist surrounded the Golden Age, and how they had come at last into the possession of this wandering tribe was a story that would not be told, for it was the story of a civilization that had passed beyond recall. Once all these pitiful relics had been treasured for some good reason, and now they had become sacred, though their meaning had been lost. The print in the old books had faded centuries ago, though much of the lettering was still visible, if there had been any to read it. But many generations had passed since anyone had had a use for a set of seven-figure logarithms, an atlas of the world, and the score of Sibelius' Seventh Symphony, printed according to a flyleaf by H.K. Chu and Sons at the city of Peking, in the year 2371 A.D. The old books were placed reverently in the little crypt that had been made to receive them. There followed a motley collection of fragments, gold and platinum coins, a broken telephoto lens, a watch, a cold light lamp, a microphone, the cutter from an electric razor, some midget radio tubes, the flotsam that had been left behind when the great tide of civilization had ebbed forever. All these treasures were carefully stowed away in their resting place. Then came three more relics, the most sacred of all because the least understood. The first was a strangely shaped piece of metal showing the colorization of intense heat. It was, in its way, the most pathetic of all these symbols from the past for it told of man's great achievement and of the future that might have been known. The mahogany stand on which it mounted bore a silver plate with the inscription, Auxiliary Igniter from Starboard Jet, Spaceship Morningstar, Earth-Moon A.D. 1985. Next followed another miracle of the ancient science, a sphere of transparent plastic with strangely shaped pieces of metal embedded in it. At its center was a tiny capsule of synthetic radio element, surrounded by the converting screens that shifted its radiation far down the spectrum. As long as the material remained active, the sphere would be a tiny radio transmitter, broadcasting power in all directions. 
Only a few of these spheres had ever been made. They had been designed as perpetual beacons to mark the orbits of the asteroids. But man had never reached the asteroids, and the beacons had never been used. Last of all was a flat cylinder tin, wide in comparison to its depth. It was heavily sealed and rattled when shaken. The tribal lore predicted that disaster would follow if it ever were opened, and no one knew that it held one of the great works of art of nearly a thousand years before. The work was finished. The two men rolled the stone back into place and slowly began to ascend the mountainside. Even to the last, man had given some thought to the future and had tried to preserve something for posterity. That winter, the great waves of ice began their first assault on the mountains, attacking from the north and the south. The foothills were overwhelmed in the first onslaught, and the glaciers ground them into dust. But the mountains stood firm, and when the summer came, the ice retreated for a while. So winter after winter, the battle continued, and the roar of the avalanches, the grinding of the rock, and the explosions of splintering ice filled the air with tumult. No war of man's had been fiercer than this, and even man's battles had not quite engulfed the globe as this had done. At last the tidal waves of ice began to subside and to creep slowly down the flanks of the mountain they never quite subdued. The valleys and passes were still firmly in their grip. It was a stalemate. The glaciers had met their match, but their defeat was too late to be of any use to man. So the centuries passed, and presently there happened something that must occur once at least in the history of every world in the universe, no matter how remote and lonely it may be. The ship from Venus came 5,000 years too late, but its crew knew nothing of this. While still millions of miles away, the telescopes had seen the great shroud of ice that made Earth the most brilliant object in the sky next to the sun itself. Here and there, the dazzling sheet was marred by black specks that revealed the presence of almost buried mountains. That was all. The rolling oceans, the plains and the forests, the deserts and lakes, all that had been the world of man was sealed beneath the ice, perhaps forever. The ship closed in to Earth and established an orbit less than a thousand miles away. For five days it circled the planet, while cameras recorded all that was left to see and a hundred instruments gathered information that would give the Venusian scientists many years of work. An actual landing was not intended. There seemed little purpose in it. But on the sixth day, the picture changed. A panoramic monitor, driven to the limits of its amplification, detected the dying radiation of the 5,000-year-old beacon. Through all the centuries, it had been sending out its signals with ever-failing strength as its radioactive heart steadily weakened. The monitor locked on the beacon frequency. In the control room, a bell clamored for attention. A little later, 
the Venusian ship broke free from its orbit and slanted down toward Earth, toward a range of mountains that still towered proudly over the ice and to a cairn of gray stones that years had scarcely touched. The great disk of the sun blazed fiercely in the sky, no longer veiled with mist. For the clouds that had once hidden Venus had now completely gone. Whatever force had caused the change in the sun's radiation and doomed one civilization had given birth to another. Less than 5,000 years ago, the half-savage people of Venus had seen the sun and the stars for the first time. Just as the science of Earth had begun with astronomy, so had that of Venus. And on the warm, rich world that man had never seen, progress had been incredibly rapid. Perhaps the Venusians had been lucky. They never knew the dark age that held man enchained for a thousand years. They missed a long detour into chemistry and mechanics but came at once to the more fundamental laws of radiation physics. In the time that man had taken to progress from the pyramids to rocket-propelled spaceships, the Venusians had passed from the discovery of agriculture to anti-gravity itself, the ultimate secret that man had never learned. The warm ocean that still bore most of the young planet's life rolled its breakers languidly against the sandy shore. So new was this continent that the very sands were coarse and gritty. There had not yet been time enough for the sea to wear them smooth. The scientists lay half in the water, their beautiful reptilian bodies gleaming in the sunlight. The greatest minds of Venus had gathered on this shore from all the islands of the planet. What they were going to hear they did not know except that it concerned the third world and the mysterious race that had peopled it before the coming of the ice. The historian was standing on the land, for the instruments he wished to use had no love of water. By his side was a large machine that attracted many curious glances from his colleagues. It was clearly concerned with optics, for a lens system projected from it toward the screen of white material a dozen yards away. The historian began to speak. Briefly, he recapitulated what little had been discovered concerning the third planet and its people. He mentioned the centuries of fruitless research that had failed to interpret a single word of the writings of Earth. The planet had been inhabited by a race of great technological ability. That at least was proved by the few pieces of machinery that had been found in the cairn upon the mountain. We do not know why so advanced a civilization came to an end, he observed. Almost certainly it had sufficient knowledge to survive an ice age. There must have been some other factor of which we know nothing. Possibly disease or racial degeneration may have been responsible. It has even been suggested that the tribal conflicts endemic to our own species in prehistoric times may have continued on the third planet after the coming of technology. Some philosophers maintain that knowledge of machinery does not necessarily imply a high degree of civilization. And it is theoretically possible to have wars in a society possessing mechanical power, flight, and even radio. 
Such a conception is alien to our thoughts, but we must admit it's a possibility. It would certainly account for the downfall of the lost race. It has always been assumed that we should never know anything of the physical form of the creatures who lived on the planet 3. For centuries, our artists have been depicting scenes from the history of the dead world, peopling it with all manner of fantastic beings. Most of these creations have resembled us more or less closely, though it has often been pointed out that because we are reptiles, it does not follow that all intelligent life must necessarily be reptilian. We now know the answer to one of the most baffling problems of history. At last, after hundreds of years of research, we have discovered the exact form and nature of the ruling life on the third planet. There was a murmur of astonishment from the assembled scientists. Some were so taken aback that they disappeared for a while into the comfort of the ocean, as all Venusians were apt to do at moments of stress. The historian waited until his colleagues re-emerged into the element they so disliked. He himself was quite comfortable thanks to the tiny sprays that were continually playing over his body. With their help, he could live on land for many hours before having to return to the ocean. The excitement slowly subsided, and the lecture continued. One of the most puzzling of the objects found on Planet 3 was a flat metal container holding a great length of transparent plastic material, perforated at the edges and wound tightly into a spool. This transparent tape at first seemed quite featureless, but an examination with the new subelectronic microscope has shown that this is not the case. Along the surface of the material, invisible to our eyes, but perfectly clear under the correct radiation, are literally thousands of tiny pictures. It is believed that they were imprinted on the material by some chemical means and have faded with the passage of time. These pictures apparently form a record of life as it was on the third planet at the height of its civilization. They are not independent. Consecutive pictures are almost identical, differing only in the detail of movement. The purpose of such a record is obvious. It is only necessary to project the scenes in rapid succession to give an illusion of continuous movement. We have made a machine to do this, and I have here an exact reproduction of the picture sequence. The scenes you are now going to witness take us back many thousands of years to the great days of our sister planet. They show a complex civilization, many of whose activities we can only dimly understand. Life seems to have been very violent and energetic, and much that you will see is quite baffling. It is clear that the third planet was inhabited by a number of different species, none of them reptilian. That is a blow to our pride, but the conclusion is inescapable. The dominant type of life appears to have been a two-armed biped. It walked upright and covered its body with some flexible material, possibly for the protection against the cold, since even before the Ice Age, the planet was at much lower temperature than our own world. But I will not try your patience any further. You will now see the record of which I have been speaking. A brilliant light flashed from the projector. There was a gentle whirring, 
and on the screen appeared hundreds of strange beings moving rather jerkily to and fro. The picture expanded to embrace one of the creatures, and the scientists could see that the historian's description had been correct. The creature possessed two eyes set rather close together, but the other facial adornments were a little obscure. There was a large orifice in the lower portion of the head that was continually opening and closing. Possibly it had something to do with the creature's breathing. The scientists watched spellbound as the strange being became involved in a series of fantastic adventures. There was an incredibly violent conflict with another slightly different creature. It seemed certain that they must both be killed, but when it was all over, neither seemed to be any the worse. Then came a furious drive over miles of country in a four-wheeled mechanical device, which was capable of extraordinary feats of locomotion. The ride ended in a city packed with other vehicles, moving in all directions at breakneck speed. No one was surprised to see two of the machines meet head-on with devastating results. After that, events became even more complicated, and it was now quite obvious that it would take many years of research to analyze and understand all that was happening. Most of the scientists felt themselves completely dazed when the sequence of pictures came to an end. There was a final flurry of motion in which the creature that had been the center of interest became involved in some tremendous but incomprehensible catastrophe. The picture contracted to a circle centered on that creature's head. The last scene of all was an expanded view of its face obviously expressing some powerful emotion, but whether it was rage, grief, defiance, resignation, or some other feeling could not be guessed. The picture vanished. For a moment, some lettering appeared on the screen, and then it was all over. For several minutes, there was complete silence, save for the lapping of the waves upon the sand. The scientists were too stunned to speak, the fleeting glimpse of Earth's civilization had had a shattering effect as the implications of what they had seen became clearer. Presently, the historian called for attention and addressed the meeting again. We are now planning, he said, a vast program of research to extract all available knowledge from this record. Thousands of copies are being made for distribution to all workers. You will appreciate the problems involved. The psychologists in particular have an immense task in front of them. But I do not doubt that we shall succeed. In another generation, who can say what we may not have learned of this wonderful race? But before we leave, let us look again at our remote cousins, whose wisdom may have surpassed our own, but of whom so little has survived. Once more, the final picture flashed on the screen, motionless this time, for the projector had been stopped. With something like awe, the scientist gazed at the still figure from the past, while in turn the little biped stared back at them with its characteristic expression of arrogant bad temper. For the rest of time, it would symbolize the human race. The psychologists of Venus would analyze its actions and watch its every movement until they can reconstruct its mind. Thousands of books would be written about it. Intricate philosophies would be contrived to account for its behavior. But all this labor, all this research, would be utterly in vain. 
Perhaps the proud and lonely figure on the screen was smiling sardonically at the scientist who were starting on an age-long fruitless quest. Its secret would be safe as long as the universe endured, for no one now would ever read the lost language of Earth. Millions of times in the ages to come, those last few words would flash across the screen, and none could ever guess their meaning. A Walt Disney production. Myron Florin was an accordionist on the Lawrence Welk Show between 1950 and 1980 and was known as the Happy Norwegian. In 1977, he made a DBW polka album that was released by GRT Records. Here's a small sample of that great work.
you have all answered your Christmas seal letter and used those Christmas seals on all your gifts and greeting cards. This is the time to help stamp out TB. And this is the season for the Reynolds Metals Company to extend to you the very best of all good wishes. That best wish is peace on earth. Much of Reynolds' expanding aluminum production now goes to the defense of the nation, the defense of our free world. But the ultimate aim is peace, always. And the great destiny of light, strong, rust-proof Reynolds aluminum lies in peaceful progress. The Reynolds Metals Company looks forward to the day when all aluminum production can be turned to constructive uses. In a future when the inspired hope of Christmas shall be realized. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Ah, Christmas. That season of joy, good fellowship, and lusting after toys in the Sears and Roebuck catalog. (laughs) I don't know about you. I don't remember. Was it important Toys to you? Toys R Us catalog for me. Oh, but same, okay. <laughs> same we used thing. to sit on that Sears and Roebuck, and we just lay there on the floor. It, it didn't even have to be around Christmas, and we looked through all the toys that we weren't going to get. <laughs> At a certain point, there was, uh, you know, there was uh, all the major chains kind of had had a had a book out so you know we'd get three or four and lust after yeah. the toys we weren't going to get. But before that, <laughs> it was just you know that's it. It was Sears. And yeah, like I said, we knew we were most likely not going to get many of these toys or any of them. Uh, but you couldn't go to jail for what you're thinking. So That's right. <laughs> and that's what the topic is for you this evening. The toys from childhood which we pined for and never got. And I'm kind of embarrassed to even talk about it because uh, we had a lot of great stuff for Christmas. It yeah. was pretty cool. I mean, we made out like bandits. Now, not like they do today, because... Not like my children do. Because it was the 70s, and well, it was the 80s for you, I guess. And, you know, we grew up with 10 kids in the family, so... But still, we got a lot of great gifts. Yeah, we weren't weren't hurting by any means. And, And besides, as Charlie Brown says, it's not what's under the tree that matters, it's who's around it. Or was it rats? I don't know. Anyway, to offset our childhood greediness... Uh, we're going to also talk about some of our favorite presents that we did get. But starting out, we're going to start with a greed. So, James, what was the first uh, present you left it after and never got? So the first uh, present that I left it after and did not get, I think, was around 1984 or 85. Uh, it was out after that, but this was when it was first uh, first came to my attention, and that is uh, the Voltron toy, oh, but, but a very specific Voltron nice. toy, okay, because there was like Voltron 1, Voltron 2, Voltron 3, there was uh, there was uh, a Voltron in which the, the people could fit in, there was a Voltron which the which the uh, people couldn't fit in. For those of that you don't, don't know, there was a, uh, a, an, an actual show in Japan called... Uh, Lion Force, uh, it was like translated to Beast King Go Lion, <laughs> right? <laughs> of course. And uh, anyways, that that went on to, to uh, you know, in Japan. And then they tried to, uh, and successfully did, reintroduce it to American audiences. And they reintroduced it as Voltron. And... Uh, that was Voltron, and I think and that it was, was the cartoon. It was Lion, Lion Force, Lion Force Voltron, and it was a cartoon. And there was there was subsequent Voltrons where there was actually a 
of Voltron. I mean, what it was, I'm sorry, there were five distinct members of the Voltron Force, and each of them had a specific uh, robotic lion that they they uh, turned into or what? No, that they they drove. They were oh, like humans. They, they had all a, looked like they lions. had a they had no. So the one that I want was was Voltron that was made out of lions. So they all had lions, and at a certain point, they would say Voltron go, and and all of them would combine into a big oh, uh, robot, yeah. right? So it would be a Voltron robot made out of. Lion, robot lions made out of robot lions, but when they were all together, it looked like a man, okay. right? So there was a toy that you could get, and it had each uh, lion, and they were different colors. There was a red, a black, a, a yellow, a blue, and a green. And uh, where are you went to this? And they thing? they had, uh, and they all were separate toys that you could actually buy separately if you didn't have enough money to buy the whole thing at once, because they did have a big box you set. collect them, right? And then you could collect them, too, and they were still pretty expensive. But anyways, I always wanted that thing. I got a piece of the next Voltron, which was, instead of everybody being a lion, it was all uh, vehicles. So they were they were, auto, okay. they were this cars. this before Transformers or any of that? Uh, it's about the same time, actually. All of, the, all of these are going to be from my, from about the same time. Um uh, you know, in the early '80s. You know, I was about, you know, under under twelve, under. That uh, must and, have really been made right. earlier, because in the late '70s, I saw Voltron-like robot toys in Chinatown when I went through. Yeah, so, what so, the heck is this? So they they had, and I also had a small Voltron toy that was all the all of the automobile ones together, but they didn't come apart or whatever. So I had okay. I had one of those, but the elusive one was. The, the big thing and I think How it was tall probably, is I think it was probably um, you know at least 12 inches tall when all of them were together um, I think it was a little bigger when they, they had a second model that you could actually put action figures that were about three inches tall in well, that had to be and, like three and, feet tall and so no it was it, they 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 like basically hollowed out the lines the thing just shoved itself down in there but okay anyways it was a cool toy and it had a big old sword you know. Voltron sword when it when nice. it when it got together you know when the Voltron uh, robot got together there was a big sword and uh, it was cool and a lot of my a lot of people at school had it and uh, and uh, but not James. but but not me so number number my my first one is is Voltron Lion all right not the car that's now, that one sucks what's your first <laughs> one that you got that it was fantastic okay the first one I got was. Um, it's kind of a bittersweet memory now, but uh, that about the same time. So, so this is the good thing is about the same time I got the you know awesome toy right too. So, like Frank said, we we never had you know it wasn't like we had terrible childhoods. But uh, I got it was a combination because Transformers were popular as well, and I got the um, Megatron. And oh, I don't know if nice. you remember that, but it it it. Uh, I don't, but it, the guys at work constantly talk about it. Actually, so. looked like a real gun. And in fact, nowadays, I've read that in Australia you have to have a special permit to own this toy. <laughs> right? If you're a toy collector in Australia, you need to have a special permit because it does look exactly like a real gun. Nice. And it was supposed to be a replica of a P38. And it started off in China as a separate thing, and it was called. Uh, like Robo P38 or something. And what ended up happening was when they got the Transformers together, they, they were making all kinds of toys that transformed or whatever it seems like. And then they put it together, you know, for a show. A cartoon, yeah. And so 
This was the leader of the Decepticons, the Autobots. Everybody knows this. The Autobots were the, you know, were the, the good guys, and the Decepticons <clears throat> were the bad guys. And the leader was a robot that turned into a gun. <laughs> and, nice. And the gun came with a, a, a butt, and it came with a scope, and it came with a silencer. <laughs> nice. So when you put it all together, it was about this size. Which is and, two feet. And why it's bittersweet is because at one point I pointed at my sister and she knocked it out of my hands and broke it. And it was a small little piece. We discovered that the thing that made part of the transformation work into a robot was a just a small, tiny plastic piece that was, I mean, about the size of a... Uh, you know, not you know, a, a very thin gauge gauged wi- you know wire, oh, and no, and uh, and, uh, and with a piece of plastic around it, and she totally broke it, and it was impossible to fix. Uh, and so, anyway, so it I do anything. I literally still have the pieces of it today. <laughs> it's like the pieces of my broken heart. And uh, but the cool, the other cool story was, uh, and I don't know if Frank has heard this story, but. Uh, that same Christmas I got Megatron, which was the big gift I got. Uh, I went on a reconnaissance issue, uh, <laughs> reconnaissance mission with Dad on Christmas Eve to buy Mom Christmas presents, <laughs> and I think we we're at like the old, um, is it Bullocks or what was over in War- Wards? Or, oh, it, Wards it, was it, in Ventura. Yeah, it was it was the old Wards in Ventura, and they had. Uh, he was going and he looked for some doll and he got a doll and and in in the aisles we were walking past I saw another transformer Soundwave which turned and transformed from a tape deck into a robot <laughs> and uh, and it, the tapes themselves you could put them in there and they came out and you got two tapes and one of them uh, transformed into a bird and the other one transformed into a little like dogs or something and. Uh, and uh, he was the one with the snarky attitude in the in the cartoon. Anyways, uh, I I I got Dad to buy that thing for me. <laughs> oh my gosh! And he wrapped it up, and Mom was like, "Where did you get that? Because it was under the tree or whatever." He's like, "Don't tell your mom," <laughs> which sounds like my, well, then what'd you say, Santa? So, so uh, yeah, I mean, obviously it's impossible. I don't know what my dad was thinking because obviously I was like eight or something or. And it was, what, what was I going to say? Like, oh, yeah, Frank got it for me or something like crazy. Frank, didn't you? And and uh, anyway, so I, I ended up getting two Transformers that year and uh, two Decepticons. I never actually had one, wow. of the, one of the Autobots. I never actually had a car Transformer. I had like a dinosaur Transformer. I had the Constructicons. I had, uh, which was, you know, uh, uh, like a... Uh, backhoe and all different construction type things and they did like a voltron thing where five of them turned into a robot you know and one was a skip loader and a backhoe and a grater and they they were the constructor cons and uh you know i got one of the bug ones they were all just i I don't know why i I got got i got all decepticons they were years of stuff and of course the villains are always better yeah and so i i had a, a lot of the villains but needless to say that 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 taught me a very Good lesson. Always don't point weapons at your sister. Yeah, and then always go with your dad on Christmas Eve to buy, <laughs> to buy presents for other people. Because you get you get paid in hush money called Soundwave. Nice. All right. Well, my uh, long lost toy love was the Strange Change Machine. On the box, it was called the Strange Change Toy, and this was made by Mattel in the late sixties. 
And uh, it had, like all the toys in the 70s, a fantastic packaging. And that was mostly what was fantastic about them. But this had a great big Allosaurus looking, you know, off into the distance. And then in a background of a, a volcano in a primeval world. And then there was the machine with the sort of a stop motion growing of showing how that it would grow out of a cube to this dinosaur. And then just to show that it wasn't all dinosaurs, it had this weird membrane-looking man-creature that they stuck on like it was just bloop on the thing. And, uh, you know, they would say, create him, crush him, then create him again. Because what the Strange Change Machine did, first of all, was a very hot toy that would burn you. Oh, yeah. Like all the Like every toys. 70 toys. <laughs> and you'd put these little... Thin square pieces of plastic, about a quarter to a half inch thick, and maybe an inch by an inch or two inches, whatever. You put it in, and as it heated up, it would come apart and expand like a flower, and then become like a dinosaur or a spider, or all sorts. It was of, like the opposite of a shrinky dink or something. Uh, it? Yeah, of? it was some weird. I'm not even sure how they did it. And then when you were done playing with them, because the, the the heating time machine, sometimes they called it, or whatever it was, unit was sitting in a stand like a rock 3D base. So you would take that out of the base, and then you could play with it, because underneath was more uh, 3D stuff in a crater and a pond, and you could play with the creatures on the set. And they had a big... Um, on one side was the instructions, and on the other side was a mat that it was the ground you put it on. It had all this uh, painted jungle and stuff. So, But when you're done playing with them, you'd heat them up again. Then you put them in this other section. Uh, it was a crusher, and you'd crank it and smash it back together. And then when it cooled off, it was back into a block again. It was the weirdest thing, and it didn't. It never quite was as nice as when you first got them. But still, it was a block. You didn't see little lines of the... Um, you know, plastic character or, or whatever. And they they had also different kinds of monsters, not just dinosaurs. And that membrane creature, membrane man or whatever he was, he ended up in a Fantastic Four comic. <laughs> they had like a, a, a sort of a mix-up so they would uh, promote both at the same time. And anyway, the membrane monster character, I, I, don't, I never saw the comic, so I don't know how they possibly combined them together. But anyway... That was the strange change machine. I, I never got it. And years later, I saw it at the Rose Bowl for 50 bucks. And I almost got it, but I didn't quite have the money. Oh, <laughs> it's man. the swap meet. So it was elusive. It was, even. it was meant. But yes, I never had it. But my friend Jack Wilson had it. And that's why I got to see and play with it. But never got it. But what I did get <laughs> was the teeter-totter watch, which I don't know if anyone knows anymore. Um... It was a 70s toy, and I was up at my grandmother's farm in Paso Robles, and they were, um, we had stockings by the fireplace, and we come down, and I was expecting, we got we got oranges and walnuts up there and a few things, but we never got, the, uh, we'd have two Christmas things. We'd have it there, and we'd have it at home, and so I didn't expect any real toys in there, and then I opened it up, and there was the teeter-totter watch. And I'm not sure if my mom just didn't get it on accident, or maybe I wrote Santa for it. I don't know. But it was way, something she would never have any idea that was a cool toy for somebody. Because why would you want it? But it was a, a watch with a clear plastic front. And then you could see the gears moving, these plastic gears, which, you know, were kind of 
dodgy at best. Yeah. It, it only uh, made a like a little attempt to keep a good time. <laughs> but then there was these two kids on this teeter-totter, you know, seesaw, that would go back and forth. It was like the seconds, click, 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 and they were gold. Um, and I thought it was the coolest thing possible. I mentioned this earlier about... Um, you know, everyone in school having one of these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, oh, yeah, I came with a teeter-totter watch, and I was the man. <laughs> Grammar school. Everything. Wow, that's really you killer. the teeter-totter watch? Um, the, the guy, there's a thing I read about the manufacturer and the, and the guy that invented it, and they said they would do seven to 8,000 of those watches in an eight-hour shift, and they sold them all. So it was very popular. And they, they um, the first one, and that's the one I got, it would go for three or four hours, then you'd have to wind it again. Oh, okay. And he thought, nah, we want the, want the gears and everything to go faster, and they don't care what time it is. So they made everything go faster, and they had to wind it every hour after that. But I had the one that would actually tell time. For four hours, at least. Yes, for four hours. But then you wind it again, and they had to reset the time. But anyway, that was fantastic. I, did, I was, like, surprised and flabbergasted and never thought I'd get that, but I did. But I do not have the pieces to that. <laughs> oh, man. Because, of course, those kind of plastic gear stuff does not last long. But I, it lasted longer than it should have because I was very careful with it. And at one point, I got paranoid and never never wound it. I just kept it. And then I did it again, and then it broke. So. Oh, man. So, anyway. So, James, what is your next lost love? So, I think like everybody else in my age group... Uh, and it was probably, I, I haven't looked at a list, but I guarantee you that as far as toys go, this is probably voted one of the best toys or the most beloved toys in the 80s. And uh, if you call it a toy, but I, I do. <laughs> it's it's in the same genre, but it's the Nintendo Entertainment Center oh. or, you know, system. And is that the one that came with the robot? It's the 8-bit. Uh, I look back. And they, yes, they had they had several different well three or four different ones that you could buy right. So they had the deluxe edition, and that came with the robot, uh, and it came with a game, two games, the game that actually worked with the robot, and then Duck Hunt. And uh, a buddy of mine got that one, and I looked it up, and that was two hundred dollars. <laughs> oh. Man, that was a lot of dough. In then. in in, in uh, no 19, wonder he didn't get in it. In 1985, now they had one with with Super Mario Brothers released, and that was 100 dollars. And then one with n- no games for for just 10 dollars less. So I mean, that wouldn't even be worth it. You yeah, have to have a game. Gosh, so yeah. so uh, Sarah, my wife, got it. Everybody that I know got it, but I never got. How did they get it? That's a lot they of money. Got it. Uh, I don't know because. Everybody, literally, not everybody, but there was a lot of people. I, w- I remember going over on a slumber party, and somebody got it for their birthday, and um, and that's all we did was play that all night, and it was like the funnest thing because, literally, it's true. It, it, it like IGN, which is a you know a gaming site, they they voted it like the best the best video game system of all time. And really, you think about it, and you think, wow, there's something way better now. But, Based on what criteria? But, but, yeah, but. Truthfully, it was the first time because Atari kind of was good, but it was kind of a novelty too because it wasn't that fun. But I don't know. But, they, they, but, there was a lot of games but, and people loved it. But I was but, surprised but, I mean, they had when the, it died. They, they had the great 
crash of 1983. It's well documented. <laughs> like, no, I know. I was there working at Target. <laughs> people got tired of it. But to this day, people don't get tired of Super Mario Brothers. Sarah loves that thing, and she'll okay. play it. She'll play it. Uh, they just released the, the, the NES Classic this for this Christmas, and it got sold out. I went to go. I didn't even think it. I'm like, oh, I'm going to go get one, you know, may, maybe for us because it's 60 bucks or whatever. It would be just fun to have the old games because it's, it's just a little unit. looks like the old one, but it has 30 games. So, yeah. uh, and sure enough, uh, they were all sold out, and they're sold out everywhere. They're on this stupid thing for like 200 bucks. <laughs> you know, uh, they're on the internet because somebody's, you know, selling them aftermarket or whatever. And, you know, but at that time, it, it was the first time when you thought, you looked at something and you thought, oh man, this is almost like the ones in the arcade. <laughs> you know, okay. you know, the video games in the arcades were all be- all better, you know, Millipede looked better in the arcade than it did on the Atari, way better. And in the gameplay was better. Yes. And even in the 8 bit system, it it was like that too, but it wasn't as as difficult because you had Contra and stuff like that. That looked better in in the arcade, but it was close. And you're like, man, this is killer. And so, and all the games were fun. You know, the original Mario Brothers is really basic, and you just jump and try to. You know, fix these pipes or whatever. But Super Mario Brothers, from that to that to Super Mario Brothers, is such a big leap. I don't think there's was it, that the next year. Or when was it? Never. No. So it's probably eighty two okay. that that came out, and I for it's still remarkable to be this day that they decided that Mario Brothers was going to be their flagship because the original one was not very good, but they did Nintendo, and they made Super Mario Brothers. And Super Mario Brothers with the eight levels and the warp levels and the underground and all of these things, it literally, to me, revolutionized the, the video game because it was something that was challenging. It was long enough. It did, you, I mean, when you knew how to do it, you could get it done you know, relatively quickly. Like, I think you can get it done in an hour or something less than that if you, if you warp and do those things. Maybe even less, maybe like 45 minutes or 30 minutes. But if you do the whole game and everything, it's long, it's fun. You know, they had Zelda, which took forever because even though it was just like the screens or whatever, it's the first time, oh man, it's a role-playing game kind of. And and all of those things came out. And, and it really was something that like when you got it, you were like, man, this is fun. And you're playing it. It was really fun, but it was expensive. So yeah, that's I, outrageous. I did not get that. Um, <laughs> well, what did you get? But, but what I did get and... I'm actually kind of glad because I, I probably enjoy this more, and uh, and that was the uh, classic space Legos. Oh, and so nice. classics. The the cla- It's kind of funny because they have a classical space period for Legos, and it's uh, from '78 to I think '84, and it's all the original Legos that came out with the crater. That was, you know, your your base mat with the Legos on it that you built stuff on was was a gray was a gray moon crater that was mostly square, but in the corner it had like a basically a hill that had one little patch of Lego that you could, okay. you could attach to it. But I I can't remember, but I think I Melvin got me my godfather got me one set, and then I got another set from mom and dad. So. Uh, and it was two different years, but I, I, they, but they have to be uh, combined because I got 
what was called the, uh, I looked it up today, it was called the Beta 1 Command Base. And I have, I still have in my, in my Legos, I have most of those Legos, some of them broke, but I have little pieces of the instructions still. And, uh, and it, what it was, was, you know, it was a rudimentary moon base where you, and it had like a little track it, <laughs> that you rode on it to get to the, the, to the ship. Base. You know, there's base and then you rode the little track. It was like a monorail exactly. It was like eight inches long or something, but you rode that and then you got onto the spaceship and launched. And uh, it was real rudimentary at the time, so it's just a box that the space station is with an open window, and all the space uh, ships have no glass or anything. It's just like the guy in a spacesuit. But uh, you did get two red spacemen and two white spacemen, so you, it was completely white with a white helmet, no visor, and uh, that's what I think everybody remembers. And and the next one I got was the. Uh, it was called the Intergalactic Command Base. And this was especially uh, cool to me. And I, I love, I you know, I thought that it was kind of just my thing. You know, I just had a fancy for it. But they, they really, you know, emphasized the blue spaceman in in, uh, in the Lego movie. Oh. And it, like like everybody loved that thing. And I, I, I never talked to anybody, never done anything. But I did, I loved the hell out of that that blue spaceman and it came with uh, a blue a yellow and a red spaceman and it was the first time i got that blue spaceman and i just thought man that spaceman is so cool it looks so cool it was like almost a dodger blue it was a little lighter and um and it was a, a more sophisticated base but kind of the same principle this time there was a rocket and uh anyways those space legos were probably my two favorite lego sets and they have way you know they have crazy stuff now you can build the millennium falcon and whatever but i did wouldn't bring me any more joy or or give me any more excitement than those two lego space space <laughs> things is, that were rudimentary james is tearing up now i think no we, no no we come better on. we better move on i love the the lego space <laughs> well very gladly good. gladly more than the, he's gonna admit it than the nes all right well uh my next toy that got away and it all, it didn't quite get away. There's a there's a happy ending to this story, but um, it was Green Ghost, and that was a game that uh, I was so obsessed with. Thought it was the best thing ever, and none of my friends had it either. This is one that nobody had, and it was a board game. It had, of course, wonderful box art. There was this big, glowing glob-looking ghost pointing, and then these kids looking on in horror in one section. And then below them was a haunted house and a graveyard. And, and this was the first, and I think one of the few, really, um, games that were meant to be played in the dark. Entirely. Yeah, entirely. You weren't supposed to ever play. And it came out in 65 uh, from a company called Transogram. And they've been making games since, I think, 1929. And then their company, you know, was sold to Marks, which I didn't know is uh, an Australian company back in 1970. But it was distributed all their toys by Ideal at the time. So I think when I got it, it was an Ideal toy, basically. Or when when you were a child. Yeah, when in 1970, I think is I didn't get it, but when I was looking at when it, you it was coming it. out as Ideal. Um, and it, it was a, a very weird game to play the ghost was a spinner and you'd spin him and and it didn't glow as good 
as it showed in the box. Because just like the Even eyes put, of the glow. Even if you put light on it or whatever. Oh, well, there's a lot of stuff that glowed. And that's the other thing. You have to recharge it constantly because it would yeah. get weaker and weaker. But the board glowed. Lots of the pieces glowed. And these little uh, trap doors glowed. But the, and the numbers glow, but the green ghost, just his eyes and his finger glowed, basically. And really, you needed to play it under a black light for it to get the full effect of the glowing. Yeah. But it's still, I mean, it was cool. It's cool looking, though, all that stuff. Oh, no, cool. all of it looked wonderful. The they really had a was... plastic haunted house and a graveyard. And you had the little counters, and there was like a vulture and a rat. And... Um, what else was there? A vulture, a rat, a in the cat. pits, they had like fake bone, bone. Yeah. Bone. Well, you'd go around and and you were you kind of tried to fall in these holes, these pits that were somewhere along the way. Because if you did, then you could, and there were some kind of keys. I don't know how that even worked, but you would open up these trap doors and you dig in it. One was supposed to have snakes in it, and one had bat wings, but it was feathers, and then the other one. Had bones. bones, and then you would look, and you'd find a ghost. They were mastermind pieces. Yeah, yeah you'd, <laughs> <For> the bones. <laughs> you'd yes, and you'd find these ghost kids in there that also, and you were always looking for this ghost kid Kelly, and I I don't know quite what the heck was going on, but it was amazing looking, and just to set it up and set in the dark was like having a seance basically. Yeah, yeah, and for and, a kid, yeah, and why I said. That it's one that had a happy ending is because James James over here, Jimmy Sweets, bought it for me <laughs> later on when I was, I don't know, 35. <laughs> yeah, he got it and we all played it. He was stay he was a teacher and he was staying at uh, at these uh, uh, house on housing campus. facilities where they let on campus and we went there and we played it at night. And uh it was really fun to set it up and, and go through it. and But we had to turn the lights on every once in a while just to recharge it. I don't and know why we didn't get blacklight because that would have been perfect. Yeah, well, we didn't think about it at the time. Plus, blacklights ruin your eyes if you're under them constantly. Yeah, of course, we've been doing haunted houses forever, so it, it wouldn't even matter. But, but anyway, uh, that was really fun. So I do have the Green Ghost game now. It was and, uh, before I was married, but Sarah was still there. So Yeah. Um, it, it was funny because... I don't even remember you mentioning it, but Jack would mention it. Our friend Jack would, oh, would yeah. mention it Constantly. a lot or something, like Green Ghost or whatever, and they would talk about it. I think you you comment, and, and then I, I just remember that because our buddy Jack perseverates on everything, and he'll talk about it constantly if, he, if he's in the mood to talk about something. So, uh, and we were going to the Ventura County Swap Meet, and uh, we walked in the, it's at the fairgrounds. We walked in the fairgrounds and we got there early, paid it, you got pay extra and walked in the door and somebody was unloading a big truck and out of the corner of my eye, he unloaded that. And, and it was literally the, like one of the first things he brought out of the car. And I'm like, how much is that? And he's like, 15 bucks. And I'm like, sold. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so I got it. Yeah. So that was wonderful. It was better probably I got it later than if I would have got it as a kid. And actually. you still have it. I still got it. Well, And it was complete. That's the funny thing. They had like everything in there. Yeah, old, all the old, pieces. Old crusty uh, feathers and all, everything. Yeah, all <laughs> the pieces and everything. Okay, well, that's that's what I didn't get and got at the same time. But I'm, I'm still going to tell another story of a really great present I got. And this, I don't remember what age this was, but my brother Daniel and I... Um, it was Christmas Eve and they're passing out presents and said well yours is outside 
So they we walked around outside and we're going, what's going on? Was this at mom and dad's? Or yeah, it was at the place I grew up in. And we went around the corner on the side of our house where you read the the water meter. <laughs> Not the water, the electrical meter. Okay. There is, it's, there's some space between my mom's house and the next house. And it makes a little alcove in there, basically. And so we go in there. And and there were these really killer bikes, and when we looked closer, we realized they were the they were our own bikes. But what they'd gone in is they put a new seat on them, they put brand new wheels, they repainted them all in this in this uh, like candy apple <laughs> speckle color. You know, it wasn't it wasn't the same as candy apple, but it was the one we hit in the sun. And it had yeah, glitter yeah. in it. Yeah, like and mother of pearl or whatever. Had they call these it. great handles with the with the. Um, like streamer things coming out, and I had that tiger thing like on the front of Pee Wee's bike, oh, where you crank it and it would roar in the front. That's so funny. That they... <laughs> and, and I got a sissy bar in the back. It was the baddest ass thing ever. So, oh. and I and I forget what Daniel's was like, but of course it was purple. I know that much. So no, that was that year. We it was uh, there wasn't it wasn't like. Brand new bikes. It was custom bikes, basically. Yeah, like <laughs> nobody they, they had, pimped your ride, man. Yeah, nobody had that kind of stuff. <laughs> Even now, it's 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 not common. But then it was never heard of, and I don't think they That's thought crazy. of. That's crazy. How would they? They, do... they didn't even think about. It. They just thought, well, they got bikes. They're good. We're not going to get them new ones. But let's just make it brand new by putting two parts on it. <laughs> and yeah, so, I mean, it had to be mom's idea. But to get all the stuff and everything, that's they the must kind, have worked a lot thing. on that because just to. Take everything apart. They weren't bike people, so they, you know, no, not at all. Been, Although they were definitely handy. people. Well, they could do yeah, whatever they abs- wanted, absolutely. but it wouldn't have been like, oh, let's just take this apart. Yeah. Probably everything, probably in the world <laughs> yeah, went know. wrong with it, and probably got new stuff because the darn thing would break. And oh, now oh, we got to get a new seat. <laughs> it turned into cost more than new bikes. <laughs> anyway, that was fantastic. That was a great. That's pretty cool. I've never that heard that great, story great before. Thing. Well, by the time you were around, I already those bikes were gone. No, but I mean, <laughs> but, you know. anyway, it was wonderful. So, okay, James. All right, in in uh, my last one, but before I say my last one, uh, oh no, I'll tell, I'll tell my last uh, my last uh, one that got away story, and then we'll we'll go to the honorable mention favorite thing that I got. And uh, so the 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 last one that I that got away was uh, in 1982. There was a uh, a cartoon I think everybody my age knows it instantly. It's called He Man, Masters well, of, of, the, of the Universe. Yes, <laughs> and and they had this. Uh, I, I think half of it was hyped up. For our our buddy Jack has been been in our family forever since Frank was four or three or something, and. Uh, you know, so he he and he loves everything monsters or whatever. So anything that came out that was monsters, he would get as excited as any kid or whatever. Even <laughs> at any age, I never knew him to not be excited about something that had a skull on it or something that was not. I mean, that that was just like a monster thing. And so it was. It's always been in, infectious. So uh, I think part of the reason it was so cool is because of Jack and and uh, everybody else. But it was the uh, the playset Castle Grayskull. <laughs> Yes. Which was uh, I got uh, the uh, the evil villain in in He Man. He Man was the Disgraceful. the hero was was uh, was Skeletor, and I got Skeletor, and I, I still have Skeletor. I don't have all the stuff, but I, I have his his uh, he had a plastic head that you could squeeze, and, and it, it was kind of rubber. And, but anyways, he was a, he was a skeleton, and uh, Castle Grayskull was his lair, and. Uh, 
And I forget, but it used to be like the Hall of Knowledge or something, and they got transformed into Castle Grayskull when the oh, evil I didn't took know it the over. Story. Oh. And uh, I didn't even know this, but uh, originally the original concept design, they were going to have a moat, uh, a plastic moat that it set on, but they didn't do it because they for for uh, cost reasons or oh, whatever. Of course, but, yeah. But uh, any extra plastic. I- anyways, it was you know what you would just be like a twister mat, but but but. Uh, a moat would be drawn oh, on it or okay. whatever. But anyways, it was this mountain that had, uh, you know, it was like, it looked like the side, it was a, it was a castle, but it had a big skull on it and the mouth was a, they had a, they had a, uh, a the, the, uh, the jaw bridge. Nice. <laughs> and it was the, the mouth of the skull yeah, would, the would open up and that was, that was the, uh, the, um, the bridge to get across the moat. And uh, my nephew had it, Greg. Uh, he he had the Castle Grace Cold, but I never got it. And uh, usually, what would happen if I wanted some kind of thing like that? If I waited long enough, uh, you know, we'd find it at the thrift store or something like that. But if, by the time those would come around or whatever, it wasn't something that I wanted. Not like anymore. now, you can find them the next Christmas. They've you, already gotten rid of them. You know, it wasn't something that I, you know, by the time that happened, it wasn't something that I was totally you know wanted anymore but i remember wanting it really bad and uh and they had you know some some different things they 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 had like a, a weapons rack and some other stuff that that was like a whole it was a whole play set that you know the evil layer and and uh super super cool um it, it uh it's definitely you know, one of my biggest uh, ones that got away because, and and I would I would actually say that it was Jack that hyped that thing up so much because he was so into the skull and the the jaw bridge. But uh, no, it was a cool toy, and all the He-Man toys were were you know big figures and and uh, and really made well. They had like muscles and you know swords and 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 the cartoon was pretty cool for 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 back then. Uh, it had, you know, it was it was fun, and uh, anyways, it was it was a great toy. I worked and at I, Target at the time, and they had a, a traveling show where Skeletor and He Man would come, and He Man wasn't a muscly man. They had these big rubber suits they'd be in. They must have died in those things because they were very thick urethane, and you know, heavy. And uh, so the guys would come to the back room, and they would crawl out of the suit, you know, to sweat out and rest. Well, one time. The guy was back there resting, and his suit was just there lying, flopping on the floor like his entrails had been taken out, and there's just his skin. And a little kid opened up the door and looked down and says, He-Man, what happened? <laughs> and so he said, Oh, he's okay. We kind of rushed him out. He was a little kid. And I think we traumatized a child that day. Oh, man. Well, what was the toy that you did get, James? I just remember they, had, they also had a He-Man where you could hit, like... They had action He-Man, which the body swiveled like he was punching, but it was the whole oh, torso. I don't even remember that. And then they had they had a a, ch- a chest plate that that rotated if you hit it, and it would it would uh, it would put a dent in the chest plate. It was like those old dolls that had oh, three faces or whatever inside. that three faces yeah. or whatever. Okay. So it was the same kind of concept, but you would you would hit it and it spring spring loaded and it would pop into a dent like oh you dented He-Man's armor. But uh, that was the, the He Man was cool. So, anyways, I have an honorable mention because, and I think uh, Uncle Frank will will attest to this as uh, one my my one of my favorite things that I got, and it's uh, I'm I'm a little uh, bashful to talk about it because 
Yes, everybody knows I'm not a bragger, but it's because I got a personal letter from Santa Claus one year. <laughs> I was seven years old, I believe, and uh, and maybe even younger. I Mom remembers more, and, and she says that I was even younger than that. And uh, I got a personal letter from Santa Claus saying how good I was, and then every one of other my brothers and sisters that lived there got got sticks and coal for uh, in their stockings. Yes, but wait a minute, you did that. <laughs> wait a minute, that's not true. How could somebody be so clever at seven years old, Frank? That's not even possible. I remember coming down and finding Tinker toys, sticks, and charcoal in my sock, and then all the toys that were supposed to go in our stockings piled up next to chains. <laughs> with a letter saying how great you were, written very crappily. Santa would have to be hey, mentally man. challenged listen, to write listen, that way. That was, that was the elf, man. He doesn't anyway. do everything himself. Anyways, that, that happened, and Frank's bitter, but it's, it's, it's fine. That, that actually happened. I'm very proud of it. Nobody else wants to acknowledge it, that, that it was real. But regardless, we'll, we'll move on because I don't want to have feelings. None of us were mad, though. We thought it was all hilarious, except for, wait a minute, which stuff is ours now? <laughs> I don't even remember. That's funny that you remember that. I don't remember that the 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 that that it went so far as to have all the the toys. Yes, well, of course I would remember. I mean, my stuff was out of my stocking. It just seemed like that's what I deserved. I guess I don't know, but <laughs> yes, let's move on. <laughs> we'll move what on. What was the toy you got? The, the the last toy that I got was, uh, and and this this was cool because I it was one of the toys that I got at the actual time that it was most popular. So that always makes oh, it. Oh yeah, of course. It always makes it makes it sweeter. Cool. And that was. Um, the uh, Worlds of Wonder was a toy store, was a toy company, and they came out with uh, a toy. And to my knowledge, like it was the only, it was the first time that it had ever been on the radar for me, at least, is that they came out with, uh, uh, you know, a, a gun set that was, you know, laser tag. Oh, and I didn't remember and you so, got that. So I got. So the gun, you could get a gun separately, and they they look like space age gun. And I used it like for a costume for years. I still had them. I still had them for until like a few years ago. I got rid of them. But they had a they they looked like a space age gun. They were like really they were really cool looking, very spacey, and and they had like red infrared stuff on the side of them. And when you shot it, they're like red lights light lit up on the on the sides. And you would wear a like a, a basically a harness, you know, like a ch- a chest vest kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, they, they would. And get... then and then the it had Velcro on it, and the actual piece that that was the you know the actual sensor was was on your chest, and 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 I think that you also had. Uh, you had sides you had and a back. side ones and a back. You could be shot in the back. Definitely on the on top of the shoulders. Now it's a common thing. Or there was a time where it was common, but there was nothing like it at the time. That was and, the new and they thing. even came out with a base so that you could play against the base. It would like randomly shoot all these oh, things. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, and, and I got the base too. So I mean, it was crazy that I got that wow. stuff because uh, yeah, new and, and not from and, the thrift and, store. And it was. Uh, it was hopefully mom doesn't hear this, but it was like one of the only times that I actually snuck in and like checked and saw that I was getting a laser tag gun because I opened the or I like did you I, I did you know or I, thank, no 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 yes? I, I peeked in in the, the no no but why did you peek that particular time or did you always peek 
No, I didn't always peak, but I wanted. I didn't know what it was, and I just was peaking what I got. And it I, looks pretty it good. Was, Let's see was, what this is. It was uh, a laser tag gun. You must, and have, I, I you was, must have been I dancing. Like, I was like, "What? I got a laser tag gun!" And I was like, "Waiting till Christmas." So, <laughs> so it made it all the harder, James. Yeah, right. So, so I, I, I'm always a person about the anticipation too. So. I like to be told earlier rather than later. Surprise! Surprises are fun, but I, I like like if I know something's gonna happen or whatever. I it, it like makes me happier or whatever. So, so Very anyways, good. it was it was it was really cool. And you know, then I was I was hip with the kids for about fifteen minutes. So. It was very cool and very fun. Actually, we we got I think I got two sets. Somehow. Yeah, well, otherwise and you couldn't play. No, you could play with the. I got the bass, and you could play with that by yourself. Yeah. But I got two sets, and I remember we used to. Uh, I I got Rose to play with me sometimes, or whatever. Just I try to get people to play with me, and I would always my my trick would always be to climb the red playhouse because we had an ivy fence that was thick. The ivy was thick, and you could climb up on top of that and get. We had a playhouse. You could climb on the roof of that because my dad was a builder, so. They were real roofs and everything, so I I would just lay up there and wait for somebody to come out and I would shoot them from the top. <laughs> Works every time. I beat everybody. A sniper. But, but uh, anyways, so that was cool, and I, I was I was glad to get that. Of course, man, that's spectacular. I even remember that. Um, well, my last toy that got away was the Colorform Aliens, and it was I don't know. It's the only thing I can think of. The color form made, but I don't know everything about them. But that wasn't like, you know, those regular stick them to the, you know, they had the Planet of the Apes set. And you'd stick all these figures all over the city and arrange them. They could take it off. Everything you'd imagine. But these were actually dolls. um, And they were all rubber with wire in them. And you could bend them all up. And they were a very cool design. You know, way better than they should have. And they were uh, representative of different planets in the solar system. Um, So they all had really cool... It was always a one-piece thing. Their uniforms or their spacesuits or whatever was part of the body. But then they would also come sometimes with a helmet or a clear plastic part of a helmet that could come on and off. And they'd have a weapon, each one. A different kind of weapon. Um... And as beautiful as they were, and they were pretty good, all of them, good sculptures and stuff, but the the way the packaging was so much even better. Uh, on the back was the illustration of all of them, and they always look better in the illustration than the real dolls, especially this one called Glossarus Rex, who looked fantastic in that drawing, and he kind of looked terrible, actually, as the toy. The rest looked pretty much like the drawing, but not him. It was kind of bad. But anyway, and he was the coolest one, this big green creature from the Black Lagoon-like creature. And also on the back was the story, a little paragraph, basically, of uh, that was done really well. It was very descriptive and evocative, and it would talk about their life in outer space and on their different planets, and it made you, oh, sheesh, this is, this is wonderful. And just a paragraph, it would give life to these things. And on the front... There was dioramas and spaceships and everything that you couldn't even get. They were just there. To, like they'd have the planet they'd show and then they'd play at the planet's surface and maybe them going into space. And you never got and one of these, huh? No, I didn't get any. I mean, years later, my friend Jerry gave me the cardboard backings and somewhere I've got that packaging. Not the plastic, but everything else. Do they have like a, a one that had a... Uh... Like a, kind of like some kind of a helmet on or something? Well, yeah. There, there is, uh, um, 
Well, several of them had helmets. There was Alpha 7. He was the Martian, and he had a helmet that would come on and off. And he was a little green, typical Martian guy. And then it was Astronautilus, who was like an underwater octopus man from Neptune. He came with a trident. There was Commander Comet. He was like an angel, and he also had a helmet. And um, he he had wings and a golden suit. There was Colossus Rex. He was supposed to be from Jupiter. Like There was a theory at the time that there would be a solid core at the bottom of all that gas of that planet, and he was supposed to be there. There was a, um, Electron Plus from Pluto, and he pretty much was an exact copy of the old uh, alien from the man from Planet X that was back in the 1950, I think that was. We used to have like a... Um... Didn't we used to have like a game cabinet in your room or something? Yeah. And you kept those backings in there? I kept the backings in there. Yeah, because I, I, I recognize this oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So you only had the what's going on. I thought you had the toys. No. Because I would trip out on the backings. Oh, no. Just the packages. Yeah. That was Orbitron. He kind of looked like the... Uh, and that one had a cool picture. It was him in shadow looking out of a spaceship window or into your window. It was very creepy. It was all... The whole set made you think of of them being way better than they are. They created this great imagination in you. Anyway, they were very cool, and I and that I never did get. I did have the packaging every once in a while. I don't know where it is now, but I would look through it, and and maybe I got the better end of the deal with <laughs> the packaging. So the, the outer spacemen. Yes, the outer spacemen. And then they, they were called Colorform Aliens just by us. But the packaging said the Outer Spaceman, basically. Crazy. So, okay, well, and my final uh, fantastic thing I did get, uh, and this was a double header. One time for Christmas, uh, as my brothers got older, they would get us. And I, and I forget, I thought my two brothers, Peter and Jeff, got me this. But it might have been my mom... I got to check, but I thought it for the long time. I have a memory of Pete and Jeff getting this and we would go and have two Christmases. If we could, we would have, you know, sometimes we'd go the real Christmas Eve to my grandma and pass her ovals, or sometimes it would be another night. We just treated it as Christmas Eve. But anyway, this time I think we had the real Christmas Eve at our own home. And the present I got there, which I thought was for my brothers anyway, was the Fright Factory set. And, oh, of course, no one needs to talk about the Fright Factory set. Just fantastic. You know, dangerous chemicals, hot, hot oven. And you had to make your own monster parts, costume things, as well as like shrunken heads and things you could put on yourself, nose ring deals and all sorts of wonderful things, eyes you stick on your head. And then that same Christmas, I went up to my grandmother's house and my grandma, which my mom must have clued her in because she would have no idea what this was about, she got us the Creepy Crawler set. So we got both of the Thingmaker sets the same Christmas. And I'm not sure, I, it must have been to Daniel and I together. But anyway, that was fantastic. And we had many years of making stuff. And even when the goop wore out and everything else, we would cut up rubber toys or coffee lids and melt them in the <laughs> molds and make our own stuff. They're burning scalding yeah. hot. You could yes. definitely get and breathing all burned. the wonderful, terrible oh, fumes. Oh my gosh! Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, all that stuff is great. Um, so that's our greedy topic for the holidays this year. 
the glories and the agonies of childhood Christmases. But before we end this topic, I'm going to leave you with one thought. It's never too late. We're all making money now. We can go out and buy our own toys. We can go look them up all on the internet. You can go out and get the toy that you missed. In fact, I'm going to go and get myself a strange change machine right now. I don't know. And I'll see you later. <laughs> Megatron costs, to replace my Megatron costs $550, man. James, you can do it. <laughs> Start saving. Here's the Norelco Santa with some new ways to say Merry Christmas. Give the Norelco rechargeable triple header or the triple header with a cord. Give the inexpensive Flip Top 20 or the new cordless. And say Merry Christmas to the ladies with a Lady Norelco or the new home beauty salon, Norelco. Even our name says Merry Christmas. Shovel, we're out for shovel and fries. We'll take all we can carry from the old cemetery tonight. In Potter's Field, we'll disinter one dead person or two. We need the freshest body, we can get nothing shoddy, we'll do. With a mind, like we find, that combined obsessed, that's younger, blessed. His studies to death, but quite progress. Typhoid epidemic stalking Arkham Town In his building halls he who's a doctor of renown But her chemical agent swiftly sends his saintly soul to hell While his mortal remains live in a padded cell Well, 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 it will cause the greatest horror this town ever saw Cause the dean will tear and eat the flesh from bodies raw Cadman Records put out a lot of creepy albums for kids over the years, and we've played quite a few selections from them on our podcasts. 
we now bring you yet another one from Tales of Witches, Ghosts, and Goblins. The record came out in 1972 and featured the voice of the glorious Vincent Price. Our selection from it tonight is The Smoker. The Smoker. A boy lived in the woods, and his father told him never to go eastward, but to play in the clearing by their hut or to walk towards the west. For some years the boy obeyed his father, but as he grew older and the paths of the west became dusty with use, he felt himself drawn to the unknown trees and the green trackways, and one day he set off towards the east. He found a lake and knelt down to drink, but the water was alive with savage fish and he nearly lost a hand. He crouched by the shore and watched the fins swirl the water, and a stranger came up behind him so softly that the boy knew nothing until the man spoke. Let us see who can throw a spear the farthest. (laughs) Very well, said the boy, and he won easily. Let us run around the lake, said the man. I agree, said the boy, and he won that too. Let me show you the island in the middle of the lake, said the man. Do you like fish, said the boy? I can see the island from here. The man whistled, and a boat came into sight drawn by three flying swans. The man and the boy stepped into the boat and were carried to the island. But as soon as they landed, the boy wished that he had stayed at home, for the man knocked him down and left him and went back across the lake. The boy felt his bruises. Nothing was broken, although he ached from the fists. He limped about the island to find food, but there was little except berries and roots and no shelter. He sat and watched the night come. If you would be good enough to dig an inch or so into the earth, said a voice close by him, you would do me a great kindness. The boy was startled, for there was no one to be seen. I'm in the leaf mold, said the voice. The boy scraped the last year's autumn, and underneath he found a skeleton lying yellow on the ground. I am much obliged, said the skeleton. Now one more thing, if you will. Under that tree just by the bowl, there's a pouch buried. Would you bring it to me? The boy put his hand down by the bowl and found a tobacco pouch in the soil and a pipe and flint. It would gratify me, said the skeleton, if you would light the pipe and put it in my mouth. The boy did so, and held the pipe between the skeleton's teeth. Ah, thank you, thank you, said the skeleton. It's the mice, you see. They nest in my ribs, and only the smoke will move them. Such a torment they are, and 
such a blessing this is. The boy sat without moving until the skeleton had finished the pipe. Now, said the skeleton, you will want to know what you can do about the man who brought you here. Well, I'll help you. He's on his way now with dogs to hunt you for sport. So you must run up and down all over the island, leaving tracks, and be sure to touch every tree. Then when he comes, hide at the top of a tree, and they will never find you. And that is what the boy did. And the dogs could not find him, for his scent was everywhere. At dawn the man took them off and went back to the land. He will come at night, said the skeleton, and it will be to drink your blood. But you must dig a hole in the sand near where the boat is beached and wait for him to start looking for you. All that day the boy held the pipe for the skeleton. And remember, said the skeleton, don't return for a year. Then. If you will bring me a little tobacco, perhaps, it would be most beneficial. Indeed it would. The boy hid in the sand until the man had disappeared among the trees, and then he ran to the boat and jumped in. As soon as they felt the movement, the swans flew back to the land, taking boat and boy with them safely among the deadly fish. And the boy went home and stayed westwards for a year. At the end of the year he made his way to the lake again. The swans were waiting. The island was unchanged. I've brought a new pipe and pouches of tobacco, said the boy. You are more than considerate, said the skeleton. The nesting season has been a great burden. The boy lit the pipe and the mice were soon cleared. Can I do anything more to help you, said the boy? You saved my life. Shall I bury you? No, said the skeleton. I would rather know the sun and the rain, the wind and the moon, and let them do their work. It's pleasanter here than in the dark. So the boy built a hut on the lake shore and each day he came with the swans to light the skeleton's pipe and to keep him company until the sun and the rain, the wind and the moon had done their work and nothing remained to tempt the busy mice.
Well, that about wraps it up for another podcast. But before we go, as always, we have one more thing for you. On December 27th, 1947, Bob Smith's brainchild, Howdy Doody, went on the air. Bob, known as Buffalo Bob, along with the puppet Howdy and Clarabelle the Clown, stayed on the air for 13 years. So in their honor, we're playing for you Howdy Doody in the Woodshed by the Dickies, followed by Howdy Doody and Santa Claus. And so until next time, this is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. Wishing you a wonderful holiday season. boys and girls. It's Christmas Eve in Dutyville. And boy gang, are we happy? Yes, because... Who's on his way? Santa Claus! (laughs) Why is every girl and boy dreaming of a brand new toy? All because of Santa Claus. Hooray for Santa Claus! Why is every mom and pop Cleaning out that chimney top All because of Santa Claus Hooray for Santa Claus Dasher, Dancer, Prancer, Blitzen They're all set to leave Somehow even reindeer know it's Christmas Eve Why does all the world look world so On this very merry merry All because of Santa Claus Hooray for Santa Claus From his wrinkly nose to his twinkly toes Hooray for Santa Claus Ho ho <laughs> And you know gang Santa will be here in just an hour With presents for everybody Everybody but me. Poor Dilly Dally. I forgot to write to Santa Claus. Oh. And I was going to ask for something special this year, too. Oh, what's that, Dilly? A set of those famous talking kangaroos. Hop, skip, and jump. Oh, like the ones that sing on the radio. Yes, Buffalo Pop. Oh, wait, gang, wait. Listen, listen. Oh, I think they're on now.
Hey, wait, gang. It is too late to write Santa. And the stores are closed. But I have an idea. And if it works, Dilly will get lots of presents. More presents than anyone else. Galloping giggle fritzes! Oh, Kalagoopa, what is your idea, Buffalo Bob? Well, for the next hour, let's all pretend we're at the North Pole. Get out the tools and some wood, and let's make some toys for Dilly Dally. No, no, no! Oh, Mr. Bluster, why not? It's too cold at the North Pole. I don't want to pretend I'm there. Oh, it'll be fun, Mr. Bluster. Listen. Up in Santa's workshop, there are toys on all the shelves. And all these toys were made by Santa's famous gnomes and elves. Now, Dutyville has no workshop. And we haven't any elves. But friend to friend, let's pretend we're the elves ourselves. We will make a workshop out of Howdy Doody's home. Grab yourself some hammers, everybody is a gnome. And by the stroke of midnight, we'll make a dozen toys. So dearly, we'll get presents like the other girls and boys. Yes, we'll make a workshop out of Howdy Doody's house. Hammers will be stirring and we'll wake up every mouse. And by the stroke of midnight, we'll make a dozen toys. So Dilly will get presents like the other girls and boys. So Dilly will get presents like the other girls and boys. No, no, no! to spend my Christmas Eve getting presents, not giving them. Who do you think I am, Santa Claus? Oh, no, Mr. Buster, but you might try to be like Santa Claus. Never. Santa never gets any presents. He's the one person who doesn't enjoy Christmas. Oh, but you're so wrong. Oh, Mr. Buster, you just listen to the princess. You will find the joy of living when you learn the joy of giving. Then you'll know how Santa feels on Christmas Day. When you start to treat all others just as if they were your brother, then you'll know how Santa feels on Christmas Day. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Let their jingle make you tingle with the spirit of this day. If you'll try to spread good cheer each hour, each minute through the year, why then you'll know how Santa feels on Christmas Day. Santa every Yes, yes, yes! I just changed my mind. Get out the tools and the wood. <laughs> Dilly, we'll make your toys and make them good. Gang. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Dilly, I'm afraid none of us knows how to make singing kangaroos. 
Let's see if you like these other things. All right, Howdy. Tools are clanging, hammers banging, lots of silly noise. House is shaking, but we're making dilly lots of toys. Christmas coming, drills are humming, lots of work to do. Time is short, so I'll report. Princess, how about you? I'm hammering a nail to connect a tail to a horse to a big toy horse. She's hammering a nail to connect a tail to a horse to a big toy horse. And how about you, Bubble Bob? Well, Dilly. I'm drilling out a hole as I dig some coal for a train for a big toy train. He's drilling out a hole as he digs some coal for a train for a big toy train. A train! Wowie! Tools are clanging, hammers banging, lots of work to do. Time is short, so I'll report. Inspector, how about you? I'm pasting on a hair of a teddy bear of a big woolly teddy bear. He's pasting on the hair of a teddy bear of a big woolly teddy bear. And Captain Scuttlebutt? <laughs> I'm heating up the wax for to fill the cracks of a boat in a big toy boat. <laughs> He's heating up the wax for to fill the cracks in a boat in a big toy boat. And you, Howdy? Ho ho! I'm winding up a spring that'll work the wing of a bird of a big toy bird. He's winding up a spring that'll work the wing of a bird of a big toy bird. Tools are clanging, hammers banging, lots of work to do. Time is short, so I'll report. Thunderthought, how about you? I'm put em, tick em, talk, get em, coo coo clock, get em, big toy em, coo coo clock. He's put em, tick em, talk, get em, coo coo clock, get em, big toy em, coo coo clock. Goody boy, a coo coo! Hey, Clarabelle, how about you? Oh, he's tightening a screw to connect a moo to a cow to a big toy cow. What? He's tightening a screw to connect a moo to a cow to a big toy cow. Oh, oh and uh, Mr. Buster, how about you? I'm buzzing with a saw as I build a door for a house for a big doll house. What? He's buzzing with a saw as he builds a door for a house for a big doll house. Ho-ho! Tools are clanging, hammers banging, lots of work to do, gang. We're making lots of noise, <laughs> but we're making toys for Dilly Dally, our pal. <laughs> oh, everything sounds wonderful, except for that dollhouse. <laughs> I'm a boy. Oh, that's right, Mr. Buster. A dollhouse is no present for Dilly Dally. You better help the princess make that toy horse. Uh, oh, all right. But it's big, Mr. Buster, so be very careful. <laughs> give me a hammer. Give me a nail. Oh, now easy, Mr. Bluster. Oh, give me a saw. Give me a drill. Howdy. Mr. Buster's getting too exciting. Oh, the first time I've played with toys in 60 years. Oh, what a thrill. Oh, he nailed a horseshoe on the horse's head. And the horse has seven feet. Stop, Mr. Bluster. Oh, see, here you go. Oh. 
Mr. Bluster. Oh, dear. I didn't know the horse would stampede. Oh, I'm sorry, Howdy. Well, I know, Mr. Bluster, but everything's ruined, and boy... Oh, listen. It's midnight. And now it's too late to make anything new for Dilly. No, Jingle bell, jingle bell, Santa's on his way. Oh, and oh, Santa Claus is arriving. In a reindeer dawn oh, boy, he landed on the roof. Oh, now he's coming down the chimney. With presents for everybody but Dilly Dally. Oh, Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas, Santa. Oh, look at Santa's bag. I can see a new peace pipe for Chief Thunderthud. <laughs> A new horn for Clarabelle. <laughs> and, uh... Yes, but before I give those things out, I have a surprise. Uh, new beads for the princess? No, something for Dilly Dally. For me? Really? But, but, Santa, Yes, I... I know, Dilly. You forgot to write. But one of your friends remembered. Huh? Oh, <laughs> last week I got a letter that said, Dear Santa, I really don't want any presents this year. But my friend, Dilly Dally, would love to have some singing kangaroos. And it's signed, Howdy Doody. Howdy, buddy, gee. And here they are, Dilly. <laughs> Merry, Merry, Merry Christmas, Dilly Dally. Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas, Dilly Dally. Merry Christmas to you. Don't thank me. It's hooray for Santa Claus. Why is every girl and boy dreaming up a brand new toy? All because of Santa Claus. Hooray for Santa Claus. Why is every mom and pop cleaning out the chimney top? All because of Santa Claus. Hooray for Santa Claus. Dasher, Dancer, Prancer, Blitz, and they're all set to leave. Somehow even reindeer know it's Christmas Eve. Why does all the world look bright on this very merry night? All because of Santa Claus. Hooray for Santa Claus! From his wrinkly nose <laughs> to his twinkly toes. <laughs> Hooray for Santa Person that you never say, you're saying that.